When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, how's it going? This is Matt here from Silver Fortune, back with a returning guest on the channel, Steve St. Angelo from his website and now YouTube channel, the SRS Rocker Report. Steve, how are you doing? Great, Matt. It's great to be here. We've have, unfortunately, we're seeing some uh, continued sell-off in the precious metals, but uh, it's it's going to be very interesting, I, I think, later this year. Yeah, and I mean, it's it, it really depends on what way you look at it. Uh, this this uh this negative sentiment certainly negative price action for both silver and gold some people are, are just waiting for it to go up other people are seeing this as a buying opportunity and i totally get both sides of it but i mean as we speak right now silver um you know under 14 dollars an ounce uh, gold under 1200 dollars an ounce you know people could be watching this interview here a week from now a month from now a year from now and and, and silver could be at 12 dollars. you know that, that'd be outrageous but it could be um, it could be at sixteen, be eighteen dollars, but but rather than talk about some short term price action, because because you know we talk all day about that, um, Steve, I was wondering if you could maybe give us a little bit of a hope, or maybe a little bit of talk about the fundamentals behind precious metals and and why this is maybe one of the worst times to to lose heart. Yeah, I I think we could start off with this, and I've mentioned this in, in a few interviews and and some of my videos that. Uh, I, Silver is and gold, but especially silver is set up so much differently than it was back in 2008. And in 2008, when the Dow Jones had reached a 14,000 mark and silver was trading at 20, the Dow Jones, the the uh, it was trading above its 200-month moving average. And yes, there is a two there is a 200-month moving average, <laughs> there is a 200-week moving average, and there's a 200-day moving average. If you're going to use a daily chart, it's a 200-day moving average. If you're going to use a week, it's the same, and a, a monthly chart, it's a monthly average. So what's interesting, the the Dow Jones was about uh, let's say 75% above its 200-month moving average before it crashed. The, the silver was 200%, 205% above its 200-month moving average. Now, what is also interesting back then, Matt, the price of the cost to produce silver was around 6 to $8. And, and now the cost to produce silver is about 15, 16, and we heard that First Majestic just a few days ago, they came out with some very uh, awful uh, pro, uh, press release that they lost money and their their stock fell. So we're seeing that the, the primary silver miners, their cost of production is right around this $15, $16 range. And if you look at the 200-month moving average for silver, silver is below the 200-month moving average, which is $16. That's the 200-month moving average. Now we're trading at $14, $14.50. So uh, even though we will see us, we could see a continued sell-off in silver, the Dow Jones is now 85% above its 200-month moving average, just like it was before the crash. Now the NASDAQ is 145% above its 200-month moving average. S&P is about 86%. So all these indexes, all the stocks are very highly inflated. And the difference is 
silver and gold are closer to their lows, even though we could see more of a sell-off. So I think when the markets really start to fall apart, and I think uh, this fall is going to be the time when I see these markets start to correct, I believe at that, that point in time, if silver continues to fall the way it is, it can't fall 4% when the Dow Jones falls 1%. It just can't do that. I think traders will start coming in buying silver. So I do think when the markets start to fall apart, Matt, I do see a correction and a movement, a turnaround in the precious metals. I think we will see them move much higher like they did in the beginning of 2016. So hypothetically speaking, you're talking about silver currently being under the the cost of production, certainly under the cost of production of, of a lot of the mines that have brought I guess, silver supply to the market in in the last couple of years. Uh, So going forward, you know, if it's under the cost of production, at at least maybe not the the overall average, but of of some of the more expensive producers, how, first of all, how long do you think this can go on before we see something happen uh, with the price? And, and, you know, hypothetically, let's say silver goes to $14, $13.50, $13.50 an ounce. Uh, What type of an effect is that going to have on uh, the metals market um, once... Uh, well, people realize that that supply coming to the market um, matters and, and that you can't just keep it under the cost of production indefinitely. You know, we're in a very interesting situation now. And uh, I had this one older gentleman tell me, tell me that the, the gold and silver market will bottom when everybody is sick and tired of it. And this was about four or five years ago. And I didn't really agree with him, but it's starting to make a lot of sense now. And even though the price of silver fell to like $9 in 2008, it was trading at 20 right? And then it fell down to like $9. Well, we saw a huge demand for silver eagles. You couldn't get them. And then when it fell again in 2013, it fell from 30 down below 20 towards 15. Then we saw the same kind of huge demand for silver eagles. You know, this time around, we may not see that. We may not see that, you know, like, oh, I got to get back in. I do believe some investors, some precious metal, the wealthy and some very wise investors will start buying silver and gold again. But I think what we're going to see is uh, as the, if the price does move that low. And I, I don't think we're going to have that same knee jerk reaction as people start buying all this metal. I think that the, the real buying of the metal occurs Matt, when the markets, the Dow Jones, the, the highly inflated Netflix and Amazon really start to crash. Real estate market, the prices of the home start falling because there isn't a lot to invest in. And so at that point in time, that's when I see a major rush. Uh, I, I think when the markets really begin to crack, I think the amount of physical gold and silver buying will be the highest we've ever seen. But initially, as the price continues to fall, we may not see a huge demand for the metals right off the bat. Yeah, you know, I tend to agree, especially here in the West. And that's what we, we get tied up a lot in, in uh, you know, U.S. mint sales or, or from the maybe the Perth mint or, or, you know, what is silver and certainly gold mint as well looking like in the United States and Europe? Uh, but we have to remember that, uh, that countries like China and India, they're, they're the big buyers right now. I mean, you're talking about some of the wiser individuals going out and buying. Sure, I have plenty of followers and commenters saying, you know what, they're backing up the truck right now and good for them. But you're right. It's not the same. It's not being met with the same amount of demand stateside this time around, this this drop, I don't think. However, 
I think is a different story over in Asia. So maybe you could speak a little bit to that. Yeah, it, it seems to be the, uh, the, the Chinese tend to buy a lot of gold, mm-hmm. not a lot of silver. That's just the way it's been. And when we see, when we saw the price of gold fall considerably in 2013, there was a major buying, especially in China. And of course in India, but the Indians are the ones who buy a lot of silver bullion. They buy a lot of silver bar. And uh, Lewis at Small Gold has done some excellent charts. And I, I wrote an article called, uh, is, is the Indian investor going to be the, the major wild card in the silver market? And you're right. Uh, I believe in 2015, Matt, the Indian silver imports was 31% of global mine supply. And, and just, just, let's say, three years before that, in 2012, it was 9%. So... Uh, right now, India is taking advantage of the silver buying. And I think uh, back in, eight, in April, just the last time they did the data, uh, they imported like 902 metric tons. And that's a, that's a pretty big amount. It's, that's a lot compared to what it was last year. And so if we see the Indians come in, especially now the price of silver is falling, if it does continue to fall on the short-term basis, we could see India come in and start buying a lot of silver. And again, they were 31% of the mine supply back in 2015. And right now, if they continue on track of what they've been doing these last four months, five months this year, they would consume 32% of the uh, world mine supply. So I I do believe while the West... Here's what happens. Indians buy silver bar. The West investors in Canada, the United States, and and Europe, they buy silver coin and silver rounds. They buy some bar, but we buy a lot of rounds and and coins, especially the official coins, the maples, the eagles, pandas, etc. So I I do think that would start to increase in the future. Yeah, and you know, another thing I think uh, we should add to this this conversation about India is... Oh, what's going on right now in emerging markets? India has not been hit with this emerging market bug quite as badly as Turkey, obviously, or or Brazil, Argentina, South Africa. Um, But, you know, I think it's only a matter of time. You know, countries like India, uh, a lot of Asian countries in general haven't been hit that hard yet. India, um, uh, the Philippines, uh, Indonesia, uh, maybe China has been, if, if you want to throw them in a lot of, of emerging markets. But but certainly India, they are seeing some depreciation of their currency. But you got to wonder what happens when, when they see um, a 10%, 20% drop relative to the U.S. dollar. Because like you said, they buy a lot of bar. I mean, uh, Indian uh, uh, citizens, you know, um, their, their, their government doesn't like it. Their, I'm sure their banking sector and their central bank does not like it. But they're, something about their culture um, predisposes them to holding a lot of assets in physical form. Um, but, but you're right, talking about, you know, the, maybe, maybe for now the, the Indians will, will prop up the, the silver market and, and maybe the Chinese the gold. Um, but, but the big wild card, obviously, is what happens when, um, when you have that big influx from, from Western investors, though to, those that have been buying these, uh, these ETF uh, funds and, and uh, uh, Netflix and, and Tesla and, and all of that. Um, but I wanted to shift gears here and, and talk a little bit about uh, the energy market. I know you love talking about the energy market. And, and honestly, a lot of what you say goes above my head. I, I'm just being honest here. It's, it's not something I talk about on this channel, but I know how important it is. And I know how you're always saying it's 
energy is what runs a world and it's such a common sense thing but too, i think too often people in the sector um neglect it right they, they don't understand uh the the importance of it so uh, maybe real quickly you you could maybe give a quick summary but but also maybe just an update on some of the developments that we've seen uh just in the last oh couple months six months okay matt before i do i wanted i wanted to say oh, one more point uh one more point on the the investment we'll know when the the, the price of gold and silver start increasing when the when the western retail investor comes in because we have to remember when china and india were buying a lot of silver the price uh, the price of silver and gold didn't really go up it, it's when the retail investor that's the one that goes into the gold etfs even if the gold isn't there i don't care <laughs> the, re- the retail investor and the amount of gold moving into the gold ETFs, the silver supposedly moving into the silver ETFs, the retail investor is going to be the one that changed it because 99% of the investors are in the retail market. Only 1% or less are in the physical market. So when the retail market guys turn around and start becoming very fearful of everything starting to fall apart, when they start moving into whether it's physical gold, paper gold, I don't care. That's when we're going to see the end traders. That's when we'll start seeing a much higher prices in gold and silver. Now, the question that you asked me about energy, and, and, and I'll summarize it this way. It doesn't matter what we do. Everything is based on the energy. You get out of bed, your alarm goes off. It's because of electricity that you plug the alarm clock in. Then you take a shower. You have to have the water heater. They heat the water to take that shower. Then if you're going to go to if you're going to go to college or if you're going to go to work, you better have gasoline in your car. And so when you get there, there's all the electricity that's running all the equipment and all the different items in the college or in the store or in the manufacturing plant. So it's all energy. And if you don't look at the energy. Unfortunately, if, if you miss what's happening with energy, you kind of don't understand what's going to happen in the future. And I believe we're going to have serious trouble with energy, especially oil. And it doesn't matter if we have electric vehicles. They just won't help us. There's just not enough of them. And there just isn't enough, let's say, uh, oil, natural gas, and coal to produce enough electric vehicles wind power, solar power, to make a difference when we need them. We should have done it 30 years ago, 20 years ago, but we didn't do that. So let's just forget about solar and wind. The most important energy source that runs the world, Matt, is oil. That's, that's the lifeblood. Everything is just in time. Everything is transported from either ships, then it's put on highways. Everything is moving. You go to the store, there's about three days supply of goods in the store. So if you have to look at oil, oil is the most critical supply. And I believe U.S. shale oil production that has significantly increased in the last five year, last five to 10 years, it will peak and decline because the decline rates and it's not profitable. And because U.S. oil shale oil production is peaking, so will global oil production. And I have to conclude by saying this. In 2007 and 8, when the, when the U.S. and the central banks, when they bailed out the, the, uh, the financial system and they lowered interest rates, the U.S. couldn't have gotten out of that recession unless it added 5 million barrels a day of shale oil, which we have over the past 10 years. You can't do it just with paper. You have to do it with the energy. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened in the Depression in the 30s. We, we had more growing oil production, and we pulled ourselves out of the Depression. Well, this next crash 
we're not going to have that energy. Matter of fact, that's when, that's when U.S. shale oil production is going to start disintegrating and declining. So you can't, the, 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 the idea that central banks can t- continue rigging the markets forever only makes sense if you can continue increasing oil production. If you can't increase the oil production, the central banks are going to, they're going to, their paper, their paper gun is going to run out of blanks. And so that's when they stop or they're unable to prop up the markets. And that's when the value of gold and silver will increase because they are the, the real stores of economic energy. Yeah. So, I mean, if we're going to delve, delve a little bit deeper into this topic about shale oil uh, here in the United States, uh, I, I think a lot of investors and, and traders have had a bit of a wake up call just in the last week. Um there, there's this new concept that many of them had, had not uh, heard of before. Uh, it's that debt, large amounts of debt, actually matters. And, and you're seeing it in emerging markets. Again, going back to that, you're seeing it right now. You're seeing it play out in Turkey, a country that I, I read, I think is 9% of their, I think it was their corporate debt, is held in foreign currencies. And, and now their, their currency is depreciating against all of those or most of those other currencies. Um, all of a sudden, debt matters again. Um, when when will this debt? Maybe you can talk a little bit about to give some details about the the sheer load of this debt in the shale oil sector, um, but also you know when does it start to matter? What's what's the trigger uh, timeline? Anything uh, along those lines? Well, it's it's uh, like the Bernie Madoff scandal. Bernie Madoff. When did that matter? When the market started to correct and people were starting to sell out. He didn't have a lot of new money coming in to pay the money that was going out, and that's when it fell apart. I see the same thing with Shell. But when the market's correct, the oil price is going to deflate with it, and then that's going to destroy this this whole very uh, unstable Shell oil industry. But to give you an example, Matt, when we had the 2008 financial crash, when the housing market was falling apart, the investment banking system was imploding, the U.S. energy industry was still in relatively pretty good shape. There wasn't a lot of debt on the balance sheets. And Continental Resources is one of the larger shale oil producers in the back and up in North Dakota. Before they started really producing shale, they only had about $250 million in debt. Now he's, they've got over $6 billion in debt. And every, every year, they are paying a third of a billion dollars, 300 million, just to service that debt. So what's happened is the U.S. shale industry was never profitable. Uh, on, on a whole, some companies made money, most did not. And so the estimates I've seen, the U.S. shale industry has tacked on 250 to 280 billion in debt to, to produce unprofitable shale oil and gas. And so they can't pay this debt off, so they offer new debt and pay back this existing debt, and, they, and then they have a new debt senior note that's 10 years away. That's, that's a Ponzi scheme. And so the problem is their interest expense continues to increase. And I did an, an article on the top 16 shale producers. Th- their annual interest expense is $5 billion a year. That's just the five. And so, I mean, these 15, these 16, that's $5 billion they have to pay. So I think when the market cracks, we'll see oil prices fall and oil production will fall. And then the debt on these balance sheets are going to destroy these companies. 
And that's when it all starts to fall apart. And it'll probably, I, I forecast within one to three years, we'll start to see a major disintegration of the U.S. shale industry. You know, I, I got to wonder, you know, talking about uh, shale oil post uh, Great Recession, uh, you, you got to wonder what would, because you mentioned this, and this is something I'd never really considered before, what would the U.S. economy look like, and indeed the world economy look like, without A, all of that extra oil coming onto the market, uh, and B, um, without those that hundreds of billions of dollars of debt that, that was created, and, and you know, where did that debt go? I mean, um, it, it stimulated the economy, right? Uh, sure, maybe, maybe there was some um, yield to that debt, the, the actual oil that they have brought out of the ground, but a lot of that went to, to um, well, energy, it went towards uh, salaries. It went towards equipment, et cetera. Um, it's no different than an infrastructure program or, or military spending, right? That that money finds its way into the economy. Um, maybe you could speak a little bit to this. You know, what would the economy have looked like post two thousand eight uh, w- without that? And you know, what what is the world economy going to look like without things like shale oil and, and potentially some other, um, I don't know oil producing areas around the world that are are in a similar situation. Yes, I, I, as I mentioned, the, the central banks could have printed money and we could have we, we, we lowered interest rates. We had all these bailouts. The Federal Reserve has four and a half trillion now on their balance sheet. All that could have been done. But as I mentioned, without the additional energy, you need that energy. It's like I could give you all the gasoline contracts, right? But you can't shove those in your gas tank. You need the gasoline. And I think people don't really, they don't get that. It, you need the gasoline. You, and this has been an, a, a, a chart that's been in relation. The increase in oil production, global oil production, has kind of matched the increase in GDP. Except for the last, let's say, decade or 15 years, or a little bit more than that. And that's because we're adding all this debt to prop up the GDP. So if you take the debt out, GDP really hasn't been going up. It's just more of an of a inflated value. Now, if we don't have the oil, then, then you, you go into a depression that you never come out of. And, and I think people don't realize how quickly this can happen. I mean, I, I would imagine Venezuelans and people in Venezuela, the citizens there, five or six years ago, had no idea it would get this bad. And I think, in, as you, you've done some videos on Turkey, what's happening now, it could be kind of the same situation in Turkey in three or four or five years. And Mexico might turn out to be the same problem because Mexican oil production is declining. And so it's, it's all about the energy. And I would conclude by saying the, when the oil supply falls, so does economic activity. And if economic activity falls, then all these real estate values start to fall. And it, it's like a cascading event. And it doesn't happen slowly. And so I, I, think, I think the market is going to be very volatile. And I think the, what happens in the economy is going to be very disruptive. And so uh, it's hard to project what this looks like. But I, I, we, we could see serious disruptions in the supply chain. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a grim picture, certainly, that you paint. And, and like you said, you know, uh, economic activity or decrease in economic activity, sure, that, um, that will 
will cause a decline in, in real estate prices and the stock market, et cetera. But, but you know, in a over leveraged energy sector, you know, uh, it, it's it's a downward uh, spiral, right? Uh, poor economic activity, or or um, I guess investors that are more uh, are, are are looking to reduce or avoid um, risk in in things like corporate debt markets. Um, well, all of a sudden, uh, oil producers are are going to have a harder time um, finding funding, right, to to increase their or, or continue their operations, and then then you have you have more decreased oil production. Um, is that kind of see where where you see it heading? Yeah, and there's there's a lot more complicated topics in in, in fundamentals that underline this, which is the energy return on investment and the thermodynamics. Sure. But you're right. It's everything is fine when prices are going up and 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 we're 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 moving we're, and we're building and we're supposedly growing, but uh, it can fall apart very quickly. And there's an ancient Roman philosopher named Lucius Seneca, and he says that the uh, growth is slow and sluggish, but the way to ruin is rapid. And that's that tends to be the way everything is. And I just did an update on the global main street as, mainstream assets, and this is based on Savalas research. The global real estate globally is worth $281 trillion. Debt, securitized debt, bonds, treasuries, $105 trillion, and equities, $83 trillion. Gold and silver has been remaining about three, $3.1 trillion over the last several years. And what's fascinating Real estate has increased sixty-four trillion in two years. Equities twenty-eight trillion, and debt eleven trillion. And gold and silver haven't gone anywhere. And I can assure you, the only way you can have increase in real values if you have a, a huge increase in oil production. Oil production has only gone up a few percentages in the last few years. However. These these prices are moving up 20, 30 percent. And so you th- that just shows you the values aren't they don't go in line with the increase in the energy. And so those are very highly inflated assets. And that's why they pop. It's it's, it's exactly the reason why these values will pop is because they're just they're not based upon sound energy. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and, you know, another way of thinking about this is, is uh, I don't know if you've heard this said as well, but but the amount of, of energy that is essentially stored in, in silver and gold. I mean, if energy runs everything, imagine the amount of, of energy that goes into a single ounce of, of silver or a single ounce of gold. Um, in a sense, you know, in, in a world with, with declining energy, what you'd want is you want, you'd want an asset that can actually... Um, preserve that that energy you don't get that with a bond you don't get that with a stock um you don't get that maybe to the same extent with a uh, real estate um maybe you could speak a little bit to that yeah you, you you said it correctly uh the reason why gold and silver store economic energy and you, you know they they don't actually store energy they're not a battery but they're they are a store of the economic energy that went into mining and producing that one ounce of silver and that one ounce of gold and so the, the value of gold and silver are based upon burning energy and using labor and spending capital in the past. Because it took all that energy, they, they produced it, and now I'm holding on that silver or gold coin. And so someone else has to give me, trade me something in equal value to that gold or silver coin. They have to either do labor, they want to come over my home 
and they want to do, let's say, $15 worth of labor, then they'll get that silver coin. Or if it's a gold coin, they've got to do $1,200 worth of labor. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem, that's the problem with real estate stocks and bonds. They are an energy IOU. They're not a store of economic energy because it, you have to continue to have economic growth in the future to keep a stock price elevated because the stock price is based on earnings. Real estate, if it's a 30-year mortgage, well, by God, you better work 30 years to pay that mortgage off. And the same thing with a bond, 10-year bond, 30-year bond. It takes economic activity in the future to pay those off. So they are energy IOUs, and they do make sense when production of oil is increasing. They fall apart when when production declines. However, gold and silver remain as a high quality store of value because their energy is ha, has already been spent in yeah. the past. And so I think that's the that's the issue why people don't get it. If the public understood that, more people would be investing in precious metals. Yeah, yeah, you know, talking about that 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 brings to mind um something that's been in the news uh very recently actually. Um Venezuela, they have their this cryptocurrency. I think the US quickly banned uh, I think U.S. citizens from from purchasing or trading it, but but they have cryptocurrency that they recently started to to aid um, or try to bring an end to this, to this massive hyperinflation that they're experiencing, and, and they call it El Petro. Okay, now in theory, El Petro is backed by the country's oil reserves. Um, I think they threw in like gold reserves and diamond reserves. Okay, but where are those reserves currently? These aren't reserves that that the uh, you know central bank of Venezuela is is holding in a vault. They don't have uh, massive oil reserves like the U.S. Uh, does or something like that. No, the the um, the asset that is backing El Petro is oil, gold, diamonds, and whatever other minerals or whatever in the ground. Uh, well, they're in the ground. They haven't been mined. They haven't been extracted. There's been no, especially with gold or something like silver, that type of value energy hasn't been added to the equation yet and even even the oil i mean if if uh if oil didn't take any energy added to the equation in in order for them to to extract it then they they would be extremely profitable but there is energy that goes into to um drilling for it and exploring for it and refining it and all of that um it's it's a ridiculous idea i remember seeing the same thing with a uh i want to say it was a silver cryptocurrency that was backed by the silver within a mine I think in Mexico, maybe you, maybe you're familiar with this. Um, and it's uh, immediately red flags went up. I'm like, if you're going to back this with silver in a warehouse, sure, go for it. But backing it with silver in the ground, that's, there's no value in that silver yet, right? There's no value other than the, the claim for that mine or, or for that deposit. Yeah. And I think this is a major, uh, a dislocation that, that we, we're so we're so used to, like a geologist saying, "Oh, I, I've, I've estimated there's a million million ounces of gold in this in this mine in, in the ground." Well, that's great, but you've got to do you've got to spend a lot of money to get that gold out, and and, and so that's the problem. And so the, the the most important factor is you have to have the energy. And so you have to have the energy to get that gold out of the ground. It's really worthless unless you have that energy to take it out of the ground. And it's the same thing with Venezuelan oil. And I think what people don't realize, even though Venezuela Venezuela has some of the highest supposed oil reserves, it's heavy oil. 
And and it's very, it's very expensive to produce that oil. It's very expensive and the energy return on investment isn't that high. And so that's the reason why not only due to their socialistic government, but that's the reason why they're, they're falling apart is because heavy oil is not economic at $60, $70 a barrel. You need much higher prices. And so that's, it's true. Why have a crypto based on something that's in the ground? Uh, and, and so I, I agree with you. And I, I'm not a big believer in the cryptos either. The cryptos are based on a very highly technical system where it doesn't take... I, I did a chart showing the, uh, uh, the different currencies and their durability and did you know crypto, like a Bitcoin miner, has to be replaced like every six months to a year or a year and a half? Yeah, and then, it, either, it either becomes obsolete or, or that's right. uh, it burns out. Yeah. Now, we don't we don't we forget this, but our banking system is based upon servers, these banking servers, these 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 electronic servers, these servers on the Internet. And those servers, on average, last four or five years. And now a fiat, let's say a U.S. dollar, if we take all of them, the $1 bill, the $10 bill, the 100 they last about eight years. Now, a gold coin lasts 35 years, but it, it lasts more than that. It just loses its face if it's used. They're a silver coin. You just have to remint it. But the gold coin lasts forever. We're, we're finding gold coins that are 1,000 years old. So the problem is the durability of gold it can last when things start to fall apart in a very highly technical system that's based on energy. So I'm not a big believer in cryptos because you have a, you need to have a very highly functioning technological uh, system to run that where trading with precious metals, you don't need that. You don't right. need you don't. Right, right. And I don't know if anybody listening, I know a common objection to silver and gold is, well, we can't just go back to trading gold coins and, and, and silver coins and whatnot. And, and uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's a globalized uh, economy. That's that's the fact of the situation. You can't just, you know, but um, I, I totally get your point that, that depending on something like like uh, Bitcoin miners or bank servers or whatever, um, those are those are not permanent things, whereas something like silver and gold are at least as far as storing assets, you know, transacting them. Maybe some system can be devised other than just a you know a gold or or a silver backed currency, um, but I totally get what you're saying. Uh, you know, one other thing that that uh, came up, you're talking about the value of all the uh, the the mainstream financial assets. What was that number that you put on it? Uh, actually, from what I remember, the the total of the uh, real estate. The, the securitized debt and the equities comes out to be four hundred and sixty nine trillion. Yeah, and and then you put gold at like gold and silver at like three point one trillion. So it used to be one percent. Now it's less than that. Yeah, you, yeah, it, it, it's less than that, and that just goes to show you, especially. And I think let me go back to the. Uh, I'm trying to think in in 2015 it was only 366 trillion so it was about one percent gold and silver were about one percent this is investment this is not all gold jewelry and all that this is just what is known as gold and silver physical physical amounts in the world central bank as well as private investment about 3.1 trillion so yeah that's the issue the these other assets are highly inflated very highly inflated 
Sure. I mean, even just talking about silver, just how small that market is. I mean, I, I, I've i done some of my own research on it. If you take things like central banks, if you assume that all the silver backing SLV or, or silver that's supposedly on the COMEX is actually there and it's not um, owned by multiple different sources or just missing altogether. And, and you know, that number, I, and even if you, you add into it potentially how much silver is owned by by private investors, um, not even in uh, custodian accounts, but but people's houses, right? True, true physical. Um, I, I think the number I came up with is, you know, my my estimation was probably still shy of about ten billion ounces, ten years of supply, and that was being generous, right? That that was being generous. It very well could be less than that. Um, you know, something like an ounce for every person on the face of the planet, somewhere around there, maybe a little bit more, maybe a little less, uh, but but ten billion ounces. That still only comes out to it, you know, at current prices, um, like $145 billion, you know, sounds like a lot of money, but that's, you know, that, like, like I said, in one of my recent videos, um, I think the stock price crashed since that video, but, uh, that's, that's like around the value of, of Netflix as a company. I mean, it's, it's, it's ridiculous, you know, all of the identifiable silver investment in the world, uh, being worth roughly the same amount as as a video streaming company, which itself has a a massive amount of debt. Yeah, and and I think the the markets are now being propped up by these highly inflated assets, uh, stocks just like Netflix. I looked at Amazon, and I like to look at the two hundred month moving average. That gives us that that kind of shows us how how crazy these assets are, these stock prices are. And even though, the, let's say the NASDAQ is 145% trading above its 200-month moving average, it should come back to that. That's what it should come back to, and it'll probably go below it. But the, uh, Amazon is 550% above its 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 stock price of 1900 or 1890 uh, a day or two ago. It's 550% above its $292 200 month moving average. Amazon doesn't even have a 200 month moving average because it's a newer stock. I mean, mm-hmm. Netflix does not have. Oh, right, two- right. And so I, I, I really think these, the, the market is, it's kind of like the tech boom. The, the NASDAQ is behaving similar like it did in 1999. And it's overvalued almost twice in percentage terms as is the S&P and the Dow Jones. And that's because of the FANG stocks as well. So, the mentality today is in technology. It, like technology, if, it's, if, it's, if, if something is neat and it has technology to it, then I'm buying it. You know, gold and silver is boring. But I tell you, boring is going to get excited again. <laughs> so, oh, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, if I, if I can add to that, I mean, talking about, uh, you know, the value of, of tech stock. Sure, it's in a bubble. But, but the difference this time around is that it's not just tech stocks or it's not just, you know, the broader stock market. We're, t- we're talking about the Dow Jones earlier back in the early 2000s. Um, you, you have the real estate market. You have the shale energy or shale oil sector. You have emerging markets. You have uh, student loans and credit card debt uh, to pile on there and, and, and uh, uh, you know, all these different uh, forms of, of debt, corporate debt. Uh, the Chinese corporate debt sector. You know that, that's why people have have coined this for so long now, uh, or called it the uh, you know the everything bubble. And and it's uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens because because we've experienced what what happened when the dot com bubble popped. We've experienced what happened when the subprime mortgage crisis popped. Um, 
Yeah, it's it's anybody's guess what will happen when when you know a dozen different bubbles globally uh, pop with within a, a twelve month span. Yeah, it's uh, if you look at Bear Stearns chart, if you look at uh, Lehman Brothers, you look at these charts and look how they behave. Uh, you look at the Nasdaq now. You look at Amazon and Netflix; they go up exponential, and then it's not going to come down in the same fashion. It's it's kind of like a uh, a right-sided triangle, but mm-hmm. much more extreme. It goes up in a certain degree, but then it comes down straight. And I think because we're in this everything bubble, the as it unravels, Matt, it unravels very quickly. There might be it's like falling off a cliff. It falls you fall straight off a cliff, but then there's a ledge there, and you hit that ledge. And you're stumbling around, you don't know what happened, you're dizzy, and then you don't realize, so you, you, you stay there for a minute, but then you walk, you, you walk out, you, you fall off a cliff again, and then you go straight down. That's the kind of way I see the market unraveling. And I also see it happening the same way in the oil industry. We're going to see huge declines in oil production. We may see 5 million barrels of oil production come off in a single year. Uh, and, and so th- that's how it'll disrupt the whole situation. And, and again, we, we don't know how bad things will be because I don't think we've ever been this leveraged before. Oh, no, certainly not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's between debt and, and of course, you know, oil production and, and uh, money printing. I mean, that's what's been propping it up for 10 years now. But, uh, you know, see, this has been a great talk. <laughs> I, I always love having you on. Um, in, in many ways, I see you as a contrarian within a community of contrarians because you know what you have to say is is just totally unique and and i certainly uh, i appreciate um all of your views on all these topics especially uh the energy sector well thanks matt and uh i see you continue to put out the uh, silver information and there's not many people doing it the public is very fickle uh, three years ago uh, it's amazing how many people were interested now. They, they, they've moved on to different things, but they're going to come back. So I'm glad that you continue to put out, uh, talk about the precious metals because it's really one of the few places to be in in the future because we're, this is how I see things, Matt. We're going to change from building wealth to protecting it. And that's, that's, that's the transition that we're going to have to start to move into. How do you protect the wealth that you have? And very few people are going to be fortunate enough to, to get out before it's too late uh, and, and try to sell something on pennies on the dollar. And so uh, I, I think that's the next major financial economic transition for the world in different stages and in different ways. But we're going to have to start protecting our wealth. And there's not many places to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and on days like this... People might be getting upset about silver and gold dropping by, by another uh, percentage point or two, but just the opportunity that, that exists in, in silver especially, but gold as well, um, it, it, you'd be hard-pressed to find opportunities like this in the past. You know, maybe late 2008, um, you know, maybe early 2000s, but then you'd have to, you know, you would have had to wait for a while or, or maybe early 1990s. But, you know, I, I put out a video, uh, gosh, when was it? Yesterday, I think. Silver at, at all-time lows, inflation-adjusted, using some some what I believe are more accurate inflation numbers from from shadow stats as opposed to to U.S. government numbers. I don't think think people just comprehend just how how cheap silver is right now, and and just how bullish the fundamentals are for it. 
I, I agree. And lastly, I think when the market does, when when we start, when let's say when the public starts to get precious metal religion, uh, and and people say, well, if the markets are crashing and all everyone's losing their values, how are they going to afford to buy gold and silver? Well, you you know you don't need much. I mean, they're going to be some savvy people. I'm talking a few trillion. Out of the 100, 460 trillion, a few trillion just getting out and getting into the metals, especially physical, uh, pushes their values up to very extreme levels. And so I think when the market starts getting this precious metal religion, th- that's, when, uh, that's when you're going to see a whole different, it's, it's like a whole different ball game. People will, will realize that, it, it's like it's like been 50 years. I call it a fiat monetary amnesia. And this is what I was trying to get to. If you can't get the physical, the next, plus, next best place are going to be the miners. And while energy, it takes a lot of energy to produce gold, it doesn't take that much energy to produce primary silver. So I believe the other best investment besides the precious metals are going to be the miners, especially the primary silver miners, because they can stick around for a long period of time, even with, with as peak oil production, because it doesn't take a lot of energy to produce silver like it does gold. Oh, absolutely. Especially as a lot of these uh, uh, base metal miners um, potentially have to, to cut production because you know, with with a, a, a falling economy, there's just not going to be that same demand for, for zinc and, and lead and copper. And, and you'll see silver byproduct production uh, drop off as well. That's that's going to be, I think, a big boon for for uh, these primary miners. Oh, that's exactly right. You're exactly right. Because uh, there's not many places to... Uh, people talk about we're going to see another boom in the commodities. I don't, I don't see it. Now, unless we have hyperinflation, we could see uh, a boom in the metals or hyperflation for uh, a year or so, but not another cycle. And so I wouldn't want to put my money in copper. And I'm not a big believer in the other precious metals of platinum and palladium. They're mainly, they're not really used much for investment, very little bit. Most of that goes into industry. So I think most of the base metals uh, commodities uh, are going to fall in value, and and gold and silver are going to be the true the true stores of wealth. And so, yes, as copper, zinc, lead production falls, there's be less demand for them. Then byproduct silver will fall too. It's 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 going to be the the best of both worlds for silver in the future. Yeah, and you know what? Honestly, we could go on talking about this for another forty five minutes. <laughs> okay. So maybe we'll have to save it for next time, and and I'll have you on in a, you know a couple months from now, see where things are at. So, um, thanks again, Steve, for sharing your point of view and, and your knowledge, and and you know all the research that you do. Um, real quick to my viewers, or for my viewers, I should say, uh, where can they find you right now? And, and tell them a little bit about your uh, your relatively new venture onto YouTube. All right, Matt, thanks. Yeah, they can go to the SRS Rocker Report. That's srsrockerreport.com. I put out two or three articles a week and discuss precious metals, the mining, the energy, as well as the economy. And also, like like you've, you've mentioned, I have a new YouTube channel that I've been putting out videos because sometimes it's easier to show the charts and explain them on, on the YouTube video format. So, I have the SRS Rock Report YouTube channel, and they're more than happy to check that out and to subscribe to it. 
And so thanks again, Matt. Maybe we should uh, check, uh, do an update, let's say in the fall. If we start seeing fireworks, that would be a great time to do another update. Sounds great to me, Steve. Have a great day. You too. All right, bye.